Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back. My guest today is Hamilton Morris, journalist, documentary producer, and a chemist. Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia is one of the most interesting documentaries around chemistry, psychoactive drugs, psychedelic culture, and traditional uses for plant medicine ever. Season three is the last one, sadly, but Hamilton joins me today to talk about his interest in consciousness, why chemistry hasn't captured culture like other sciences, why MCAT failed because of a branding issue, why we should be synthesizing DMT ourselves instead of squeezing toads, and much more. If you haven't got chance to watch Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia and you enjoy this episode, you will absolutely adore it. There is a link in the show notes below where you can search to just see where you might be able to watch it in your country. Um, Hamilton's awesome. Like he's such a he's so in love with the science in a really sort of rationalist way, and then has this other side to him which is very empathetic and very sort of forgiving, and he's he's interested in psychology. I, I really really enjoyed this, and um, it's been a long time coming. I've watched his work for years, years and years, like a decade, and uh, yeah, got him on the show. Pretty cool. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, 
and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time to learn about psychedelics with the wise and very wonderful Hamilton Morris. Hamilton Morris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really happy to have you here, man. If you meet someone at a party for the first time and they ask, what do you do? What's your answer? It depends on what I'm doing at the time because I I do a number of different things. If I'm directing a TV show, then I'll say I direct a TV show. If I'm writing, I'll say... I'm writing an article or I'm doing research on this story for a magazine piece or something like that. And if I'm primarily doing chemistry, I'll say I'm doing chemistry right now. I'm doing some (laughs) chemistry. So (laughs) it just depends on what I'm doing because I do different. I've tried to balance these three components of my life and as best I can, not only balance them, but allow them to feed off of each other and integrate them into each other in an interesting way. So I think that's actually been very helpful. What ties those three things together? I think curiosity and a desire to investigate the natural world, to understand the world. Um, That's certainly a huge goal of chemistry is to understand the natural world. It's been the focus of almost every article I've ever written, whether it's about crime or chemistry or psychoactive drugs, to try to understand things, phenomena, how they happen, what happened in the past, what's happening now. And filmmaking is the same thing as well, to try to document things, to characterize them, to understand things that are mysterious. I think I've heard you say before that a lot of chemistry is in not superbly accessible formats. A lot of it's in quite sort of difficult to understand written words. And that was one of the reasons why you enjoy doing the filmmaking as as well to make it a bit more accessible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it's kind of amazing to me, given how many people have cameras and the existence of YouTube and the existence of this international chemistry community how many basic chemistry things seem to have never been filmed before. Like I was talking with a, uh, a chemist acquaintance in Australia a couple nights ago, who's doing this really cool project of trying to synthesize this substance called Cubane. Uh, have you ever heard of this before? No, what is it? This is, it for chemists, this is like one of the coolest things ever created. It's a cube made of carbon. So it's, it's uh, eight carbon atoms that are, 
connected in a cube. And it's very, very hard to do that because carbon doesn't want to have 90 degree angles. It's a very strained uh, bond for a carbon atom. And this guy is doing it in his garage, which I just think is so cool. And uh, but this is like a very famous chemical. It's in uh, most textbooks. And I was thinking, I've never seen a photograph of cubane. I don't know if cubane has ever been photographed before. I don't know if, you know, like there's a lot of industrially important, academically important reactions that basically are visually unknown to people. They have no idea what they actually look like. And so that was another big part of it is, is like one of the, you know, one of the, I think the most amazing things that I have learned from years of doing lab work is that chemistry is beautiful and, and having the ability to bring that beauty to people to show them, you know, well, you might see methamphetamine synthesis as this exclusively negative thing, or you're only thinking about it in terms of its potentially destructive effect on society. But what about the, the beauty of a solvated electron? I mean, it's pretty that's, remarkable. That's, some people go to bed thinking about that at night. I, I, <laughs> I, I do all the time. Um, <laughs> something that I thought of while I was watching the most recent season of your show, and your love for chemistry sort of comes across really strongly in it, is there isn't, I don't think there is the same societal, cultural fervor and interest in chemistry as there is perhaps in physics and biology at the moment. I'm not sure whether you get the sense of this, but when we think about all of the the Large Hadron Collider and we're searching for extraterrestrials and we're messaging extraterrestrials and there's new particles being formed and stuff like that. And then CRISPR gene editing, the side of, I don't know whether that's technically chemistry or biology or somewhere in between the two, but still, like I just feel that things like this perhaps don't get the level of public exposure that their rival sciences might do. I agree completely. It's absolutely true. And I find it a little bizarre um, that physics and astrophysics, of all things, dominate pop science discourse. This discipline that is more disconnected from our everyday life than almost anything else. And I'm, I'm sure there's some astrophysicists listening to this saying, like, what the fuck did he just say? <laughs> but... but but, but that is, that is my feeling. It is, you know, like black holes are obviously totally fascinating and I am not, uh, going to suggest for a moment that people shouldn't be interested in black holes or neutron stars or anything like that. It's totally, totally fascinating. I'm fascinated by it, but at the same time, it's almost like science fiction. It's almost like fantasy. It has no connection to our lives whatsoever as remarkable as it is whereas chemistry is so insanely important to our everyday existence and is happening immediately around us inside us in front of us it's controlling every aspect of our reality all the time and it's considered boring so that is uh is something that i i do find remarkable and you know and and it's not only remarkable i think it's it's I've asked myself, why? How could this have happened? How how has big astrophysics destroyed the small interest in chemistry that should be should be present in every person? And you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but I do think this kind of like safety culture, fear of the power of chemistry, 
fear of psychoactive drugs, fear of explosives, fear of poisons, fear of uh, toxic wastes, all these different things have just uh, created a culture where we've kind of brushed chemistry to the side and decided that it's uh, boring, dangerous. The word chemical is a bad thing for many people. They, you know, I call chemophobia is what chemists call it, where someone will say, oh, this food doesn't contain chemicals. And people will say that's a good thing. Of course, all food is made of chemicals. Chemicals <laughs> are matter. So it's just like, you know, it's, it's all just kind of shows how disconnected we are and how, you know, it's, you know, you can't go to a pharmacy in the United States and get a pH indicator anymore. Like we're, we're, we're totally disconnected from, I would say even the most basic aspects of chemistry. And, um, it's really sad because I think it's a, a science that is one of the most ancient scientific disciplines, maybe the most ancient. And it, I mean, especially if you include metallurgy as a form of chemistry, which it is, um, and something that humans have been connected to for such a long time, so important to who we are, how we are here right now. And, and yet, it's considered boring. That's why you're here, man. How much yeah. does a intrigue or an interest in consciousness and the phenomenological experience of our day-to-day -day experience guide what you do? I would say it's a huge, a huge motivator. I wouldn't say that I'm especially optimistic about consciousness being understood in the next few years. I mean, I, what I really think is the case is that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of concepts that aren't really scientific concepts, but they're useful. It's like, I think about consciousness the way historically people would look for life. You know, like if, if you ask a, uh, like we're aware life exists, life is a thing that exists. And if you ask a biologist, can you show me where life is? in a cell, uh, they can't point to life in a cell because life isn't a single thing and it can't be discovered scientifically or understood scientifically because it's not really a scientific concept exactly. It's a sort of collection of phenomena that we are using to describe something uh, that isn't one thing. And I think consciousness is like life in that sense, that it doesn't actually exist the way that we there's, you know, we're not going to realize, oh, the consciousness is it's the it is the claustrum. That is what consciousness. It's this region of the brain and it's and it's a, a quantum mechanical interaction in the claustrum and that produces consciousness. No, it's consciousness is going to be many, many things in the way that life is many things. And you can reduce what life is and say, OK, it's homeostasis, it's reproduction, it's metabolic regulation, it's a certain type of organization. And, and we can agree that, that those are uh, useful defining characteristics of life, which, of course, biologists still to this day argue about constantly what constitutes life. Um, and I, I don't think consciousness is going to be any simpler. So uh, so. I am motivated to understand consciousness, but I'm also doing that with the uh, understanding that I don't think consciousness will be understood in a single way because I don't think it is a thing. I think it is a label that we use to uh, describe the complex experience of being or the perceived experience of being. Um, yeah. 
these emergent properties are very difficult to try and try and wrangle together when you think about the synergy of different cells when does a particular number of cells become skin when does it become an arm when does it become a body when does it become a human and i wonder yeah man i mean we've had a few philosophers on philip goff talking about the philosophical schools of consciousness dualism and uh the his his particular um belief as well given that you seem to have quite a rational scientific approach to things it's interesting that you don't think that we're going to find out what consciousness is i would have thought that you would have maybe expected it to be able to be explained by science oh i think that it will be explained by science in the way that life has been explained by science but in being explained by science it will be explained away it will not exist anymore because i don't think it is real i don't think consciousness exists in the way that um, DNA exists. It, I don't think it's a single thing that can be understood and characterized. I think it's a, a collection of different computational, experiential, perceptual phenomena that in concert create a perceived experience that we call consciousness, but it's not a thing. And so we will understand how emotion and memory are regulating aspects of perception and motivation and all these things. But it's very, I mean, it's very complicated. I would think (laughs) I imagine maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it turns out that someone is going to find out that it's a really simple thing. And, uh, and it is one thing and everything that I'm saying is wrong. But, uh, my intuitive sense is that there will never be a paper published in nature that's you know consciousness explained here's what it is it's this one quantum mechanical interaction in a microtubule in the claustrum and that's it i get you what is the place that psychedelics and other mind-altering drugs have in life like why should anyone take them Mm. i don't know that anyone should take them why would anyone want to take them perhaps yeah uh why would anyone want to take them because they have the potential to dramatically enrich your life in the same way that music and art and love and a lot of other technically unnecessary things have the potential to enrich your life. So if someone is saying, you know, you don't have to do that, you can do it another way. Sure. You don't have to listen to music either. You don't have to do a lot of things, but I don't really see a good reason not to, um, assuming that, you know, you're doing it responsibly and you are, you know, I suppose stable enough to benefit experience somewhere. A lot of the people on the most recent season of Hamilton's Pharmacopia were talking about psychedelics being sacred. You had this debate around the uh, toad venom and you were saying, look, we can save these toads if we synthesize it in a lab as opposed to chasing them down. And they talk about them being sacred and gifts from the God and the universe and stuff like that. How do you feel around this sort of rhetoric to do with psychedelics? Mm, I feel different ways about it. it. It kind of depends on what culture I'm, I'm interacting with. Um, I would say I feel it's like everything. You know, if somebody says something is sacred and there's no cost to that perspective, then sure, that's fine. Or if it's part of a multi-generational tradition and I have no place interfering with it, fine. You know, like there's a 
belief among many Native American church members that peyote is not a drug or a plant that contains a drug. It's a, a spirit. And to even talk about mescaline as an active principle in the cactus is a sort of sacrilegious reductionist perspective that acknowledge the depth of the spirit of the peyote. Um, and so if you say, hey, come on, come on, guys, you're you're going to drive this plant to extinction by overharvesting it and you can synthesize it in a couple of steps and then you don't have to interfere with the natural world. You know, that's a that's a hard argument to make. That's not an argument that I'm I, well, I would if I made that argument, I make it very gently and I would probably instead start with um, suggesting that the peyote be cultivated, but they don't even like cultivation and, and arguably with good reason, because um, a lot of the cultivation techniques have been focused on growing very large peyote as opposed to um, growing peyote that has a high alkaloid concentration. And so I think some early attempts to cultivate peyote for the Native American church produced low potency cacti that they considered inferior. And so they, uh, this is my impression, having reported on this uh, a few years ago, uh, they kind of decided that this cultivation was, uh, was a bad route to go down. So that's, a, that's you know, a complicated interplay of tradition, indigenous people who have been horrendously discriminated against and marginalized and something that has had a very positive effect. And then you want to come in and say, hey, I know this is having a really positive effect on you and your family and your community, but it's not good for the sustainable uh, life of this cactus. So you have to change your practices. You know, it's I can understand why that would be an objectionable thing um, with the toad. I think it's different because we are dealing with something that is not a tradition. It is not <clears throat> something <clears throat> that has been done for generations by a marginalized group. It's a new thing that started in the 80s by uh, a white guy in Texas. And I actually really find that important and interesting because there's a, a tendency that many people have um, to they have to in order they feel, I think, some kind of insecurity about their use of these things. And so they need some justification. They need to say that it's therapeutic or traditional or spiritual or something. They need to they can't just say, I enjoy this. And so you really butt up against that with modern practices because there is no tradition. <clears throat> there might be no evidence that it's therapeutic and any spirituality associated with it will be something that is new and so that doesn't have the same value to people and so people basically invented a tradition for bufo alvarius venom and um and, and you know my like i got so many messages from people saying like you're just another white colonist erasing the history of native americans <laughs> this 30 and, year old history <laughs> yes and uh and, it, and it's like but I am acutely aware of the fact that people very much want this to be a Native American practice. And if anyone produces any evidence that that is the case, I will change my mind. You know, I, I have no I'm interested in the truth. So if somebody provides strong evidence, I'll change my perspective on this. But the um, 
the reason that there is this misconception is that there was a, there have been a few discoveries of large quantities of toad bones. One was in uh, North Carolina, and the anthropologist whose name was uh, Jean Runquest, I believe. Um, she and and this was also a problem in my episode. Like the article that I show in the episode has all these mistakes in it, but what I say in the episode is correct. But then people were criticizing me because there was like a, uh, it wasn't like synchronized, but if you, whatever I say in the episode is correct for the record. And, uh, and so she found all these toad bones and knew that there were some toads that produced psychoactive tryptamines and wrote this paper that suggested that that was the case. And it's kind of sensational. People like, any story about ancient use of psychedelics, myself included. And, uh, and so it got written up a little bit in the popular press in Omni magazine, which is a big magazine at that time. And, um, and this is really interesting the way it happened. And so this guy, Ken Nelson saw this in Omni magazine and then went to try to recreate what he had read about. But what's really interesting is that was misreported in Omni magazine. So a mistaken report, a mistaken interpretation of this Native American practice caused a real discovery to occur. The all current evidence, uh, there's a, an anthropologist named Matthew Compton who looked into this, uh, points toward the toads having been used as a food source, not as a drug. And there's a <laughs> lot of reasons for that. <laughs> There's a lot of evidence. One, one is that Bufo alvarius, which is the only species that produces 5-MeO-DMT, is not present in the Carolinas. And, uh, and so there's that. There is no plausible psychedelic toad. Also, um, there are documented, I, there's a book, I actually have it, of like traditional Cherokee practices in food preparation. It has a section on the preparation of toads for consumption. And they talk about how to detoxify it. So it's the opposite of using it as a drug. They're trying to remove any potentially toxic principle so that it can be consumed. Um, so, yeah, you, it's and toads are a, a decent source of food. So, like, it doesn't really make sense that there would be all these, like, uh, toad skeletons if it were used as a drug. But it would make a lot of sense given that there weren't any psychedelic toads in that region, that they were using them as a food. Okay, so this misconception caused him to get interested in the possibility, and then he independently actually discovered that you could milk the venom of this toad uh, and smoke it based on some research by an Italian uh, biologist named Vittorio Urspamer. Complicated story. I don't blame people for being confused by it. It's very confusing. Um, but that's that's what happened. So all these people are saying, how dare you? Like you said that he discovered it from a Cherokee uh, midden pile. And then you're saying that a white person discovered it. But the complicated thing is it was a misunderstanding of what that Cherokee midden pile was. OK, I hope that made sense. I don't know if that did that what make a sense. mistake, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not bad as misrepresentations go that you get to open up an entire new world of psychedelic experience. What's your right. uh, what's your opinion on the sacredness coming along for the ride? Do you think there's anything more happening during the experience of taking a psychedelic than just the interaction of the chemicals with your brain? Are we accessing a higher power? Is there someone talking to us? Is there energy in the universe? 
Well, what, what I find funny is people are constantly invoking the supernatural in places where just simple psychology is sufficient. You don't need to uh, you don't need to go into the spirit realm to understand that there are non or, or non exclusively externally chemical determinants of experience. So this and this goes back to the 60s. You know, Timothy Leary did experiments at Millbrook where he would put LSD in milk that was dyed red. And then he'd put LSD in milk that was dyed green. And then he'd put LSD in milk that was dyed black. And he would say, this LSD does this and this LSD does that. And of course, people would have different experiences based on the different colored LSDs and the different types of experiences that he'd primed them for. So this is like basic psychology. And of course, Leary was a psychologist. So it, it, uh, it really makes sense that if you tell someone, hey, this was, you know, harvested from the sacred venom of a sacred toad as a medicine that they they're, you know, they estivate in a subterranean den for nine months, just like human gestation. And they and they uh, create this this chemical that that causes a rebirth. And this is their gift to us and to increase our ecological awareness or whatever. You can make a beautiful story. And and for the record, I have smoked the venom and had an absolutely amazing experience with it. So I get it. I get why I think it's cool. I'm, I'm not one of these people that, you know, like, I understand why people like it. I think it's amazing. I totally get it. But it's not sustainable. And with the popularity increasing at the rate that it currently is, there needs to be a different way of doing it. Um, you know, it hasn't been studied as well as I would like it to. And one of the uh, things that I'm doing with this episode is I republished the book that Ken Nelson wrote. And uh, I'm donating all of the profits to charity. And it's been this like unexpected, insanely successful fundraising effort at like at as of today, I think it's raised $130,000 for the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's research. But also there's separate money going to uh, the Tucson Herpetological Society. And, you know, I really want to get some carefully documented data on how the populations are impacted because most of what I know is anecdotal. It's, you know, I, I spoke with a number of the people that uh, milk Bufalvarius for a living. And those people, if anyone have incentive to downplay the severity of any ecological disruption because their livelihood depends on it. And even those people were saying, this is not sustainable. Like this is not a good, uh, this is not a good practice. So, <clears throat> so, it's not that I'm I do believe that people can have different experiences based on different substances. But I think that the determining factor is psychological, not chemical, unless you have a reason to believe that it is. And of course, I am aware also that psychology is, you know, biochemically determined. But but I'm talking about the chemistry of the drug itself, like that. If you I, I think that with the appropriate tradition and the appropriate packaging, you can get, you can extract that from any substance in the same way that you could make the best LSD in the world feel bad to people if you, you know, served it to them in like a pot, in like a brown tar and said that it had been scraped from underneath the toilet and, uh, and that it was like cursed by a serial killer or, or something like that. Like these, these, uh, these things impact the experience. Um, 
completely. That's the fascinating thing about set and settings. I, I don't need to make sure that I'm in a good place for ibuprofen to do its job properly or like aspirin to do its job properly. But the environment that you're in and the mindset that you have going into the experience does inherently change the experience of the substance that you're taking when it comes to mind-altering stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's, <clears throat> that is one useful thing to come out of this um, kind of unusual new tradition. There are these two medical doctors in Mexico who have become toad venom evangelists and they're very controversial in the toad venom community um i was also getting a lot of criticism from people that were saying why didn't you talk about how bad these guys are well you know i like i can't fight everyone's fights with these people for them but it's they they have there's a lot of um infighting a lot of anger in the toad venom community and i think Part of it has to do with the power of the substance. You know, I think that um, from what I can tell, some of the they call themselves facilitators, the people that that give 5-MeO-DMT containing toad venom to people almost become addicted to the power of the transformation that they are promoting with the administration of the substance. You know, you can imagine being a psychologist or something and you know, doing talk therapy with people for years and never, you might never see a change. You might never see even the smallest change in someone's behavior. And you can imagine the, the feeling of futility that that would promote in someone who's dedicated their lives to healing. And then you have a substance that will cause absolutely extraordinary change, spiritual experience, transformation, life-changing transformation in people immediately and how encouraging that could be to someone to think you know this, how could you do anything but that what else you know what else would be worth your time as a healer but to administer the substance so i see where they get a little um lost in it themselves and and to be honest there's an element of that with me as well where i you know when i had this experience when i came out of it i one of the first thoughts I had was, you know, given the skills that I have, how can I help other people have this experience? And for me, that was chemistry. That was, you know, I, if I can show people that this is a simple molecule that can easily be produced by someone with the undergrad chemistry knowledge, um, and, uh, and, and made available to anyone that needs it, then that will have a positive effect on the world. Why would you want other people to experience what you did? What was the benefit that you saw from it? Um, you know, I, I would say that it's many of the benefits that people typically associate with a near-death experience, um, where you feel extreme gratitude for life. Uh, you feel um, an appreciation for the beauty of the world that you can very easily take for granted. You know, I was totally tenderized. I was hypersensitive in the wake of this experience. I, uh, hypersensitized in every way I would, you know, be moved to tears by the beauty of a cute dog walking down the street. Um, just like totally, totally amazed by plants and all life. And, um, I think that that, 
without even medicalizing it. Now, like, obviously, that has a lot of potential for treatment of depression and various diseases, addiction, and so on and so forth. But even for a healthy person, that's pretty nice. That's a useful little change of pace to remind you that life is a gift and that it's beautiful and that it should be appreciated because it's really, really unbelievably strange and interesting and cool. Why do you think it is that people have these religious experiences? Why do you think the phenomenological, and not just with the toad venom, but with many things, many psychedelics, induce this sort of sacred, religious state? I'm communicating with higher powers. One of the thought experiments I've been playing around with for ages is what would happen to someone? Did you ever see the film Mother? It was made by Netflix. Oh, you don't have a TV. I don't know. Uh, the Darren Aronofsky movie? Maybe. Was it about the girl that was raised by a robot? Uh, oh, I, I watched half of it on an airplane. Okay, so you know the premise, right? So I believe so. Yeah. You, ha you have this um, human that is raised with essentially no culture. They're given words because they have language, but they're not given any cultural influence. It's just them essentially in a Petri dish. The Petri dish just happens to be a big building that they live in. Have you ever considered what would happen to someone who hadn't been imprinted by culture if they were to take a psychedelic? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I consider it all the time uh, I, because I'm very interested in the way animals respond to psychedelics and, uh, and what a psychedelic experience is for a rodent or if there even is a psychedelic experience for a rodent. And... Um, it's hard enough to conceptualize experience for another human being, let alone an animal or someone that has no cultural imprinting or anything like that. So it's sort of hard to say, but what, what do you think? What is, uh, what oh, do you man. think would happen? In those? Well, I mean, I think based on my very mild introduction to psychedelics, stuff like the geometric patterns that you seem to see tends, they would be fairly ubiquitous. They don't necessarily require the cultural imprinting. For instance, if you were to take something like psilocybin and you get that sort of hexagonal psychedelic effect in front of you like a, a kaleidoscope, that mm -hmm. I don't think that that requires culture. Um, it would be so interesting, man. Like, would you, if you don't know what a dragon is, can a dragon chase you down? If you don't know what a snake is, can you be scared of a snake? Like, is it blob? I'm, I'm trying to remove the programming from this particular human in the test tube that we're talking about and see what's left when you introduce the, the psychedelic to them. Yeah, well, I mean, one one thing that I would imagine is religious experience. I think that, that um, the psychedelic experience probably is a religious experience, I imagine, as someone who is, you know, atheist agnostic, it's certainly the closest I ever get to what I imagine religious transcendence is like. And so I think that, yeah, it, it could promote some, some version of that. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is that, like, and one reason that drug education is so important is the way we think about drugs impacts the experience, as I was saying previously. So little things like, you know, just even the way people talk about drugs or that people are burnt out, they're acid burned, they're frying on acid, all this, you know, there's people that think that dr the drug experience is a, like a form of brain damage. And, you know, outside of it being a misconception, 
it also makes me wonder, well, what does that person feel like when they take LSD? If they think that it's bad, if in, if they think that this is they're frying on on acid and that it's like that it's damaging to them in some way, how could you possibly have a good experience that way? I mean, there's also quite a lot of people that seem to think that the mushroom experience is a form of food poisoning. You hear that all. Have you heard that? No. At least in the U.S., people people will say like, hey, my, my friend told me that when you trip on mushrooms, it's just food poisoning. And uh, and I think like, wow, there are people that have mushroom experiences who think that what is happening is food poisoning. Um, and, <laughs> well, I've, I've, heard uh, you, I've heard you talk about um, some of the residual guilt that you get when you sometimes used to smoke weed. Because it's yeah. kind of associated with this, I'm being a bit of a waste man, I should be working, I should be studying, I should be being productive. And that's almost exclusively because of how you've been socialized. What do other people say about people who take that drug? It's true. It, well, it's true. It's true and it's not true. It's, it's, very, it's very complicated, I think, with cannabis. That's one of the more complicated ones. Because um, I think that one of the advantages and disadvantages of cannabis is that it allows you at least allows me it does different things to everyone it allows me to take things less seriously a lot less seriously um and that's great sometimes and not great uh not great as a daily alteration of consciousness so you know, it's very easy for me to just, you know, I'm, I'm receiving like 100 emails a day from disgruntled weirdos. And I think, uh, you know, like, oh, what is wrong with these people? How could they possibly watch what I made and think and extract that of all possible interpretations? What is going on? But then if I'm stoned, I think, oh, all right, well, I don't know. I guess I guess people think strange things. And that's just uh, the way it's going to be for that guy. <laughs> but but um, and so that's that can be extremely, extremely beneficial uh, in if you're living a frustrating life or you're just totally occupied with your professional responsibilities or your studies or whatever. Um, but too much of it, at least for me, and it, it has a bit of a dissociative type effect where I I'm not as engaged with the world, which, again, can be beneficial. It really just depends on the context. And I agree with you that you could you could make a valid argument that this is all conditioning and especially conditioning from a capitalist society that values productivity over everything else, over joy, over relaxation, over uh, camaraderie with friends, over almost anything. So, yes, like I think that there are many extremely stoned people who are living a beautiful existence that is disconnected from our American European value system that where if you're not just constantly generating things, you're of no value. Um, and, and of course, there are also people that get stoned all the time and are immensely productive and are able to you know, do huge amounts of work. And I have a lot of respect for those people. I'm not one of them. Uh, so. No, me neither. Should, do you think any drugs should be illegal? What's your stance on the legalization of drugs? No, I do not think any drugs should be illegal. Um, I think that 
and I'm aware that my perspective on this can sound a little bit doctrinaire, and I try to remember that that there are people who are just so irresponsible that maybe certain types of regulations are required for public safety. You know, um, certainly I think that it's really good that radioactive materials are regulated. I, I do. I mean, I think it's it's we we there is a history spanning. Uh, like over a hundred years of people just doing irresponsible things with radioactive materials. And the government is very careful about regulating how radioactive materials are distributed. And I appreciate that. I think that's really useful because, you know, if someone is selling you some flower extract as a treatment for COVID or whatever, fine, you know, let, let maybe not fine, but it's not, it's not going to, kill the person i hope most likely i mean i suppose there is exceptions for everything but you know radioactive materials routinely make their way into quack medicine and uh and that's you know that's really tragic for the people that get caught up in that sort of thing same thing with these um these you know like nitrile uh like what is that compound that's used as a, a, a quack cancer treatment like late tr latrile or whatever it's like a base science Pro drug, anyway. So, like, I think that some, um, some, some things, when they're sold as medicines and are extremely dangerous, should be regulated. But I think that if things aren't being sold as medicines, just as chemicals, they should be available. Pretty much everything within reason, but not radioactive things. Probably, probably not radioactive. Things. So, if it's not a radioactive psychedelic, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> and there are radioactive i've actually uh like um tim ferris was really nice and he like donated some money to uh to the lab that i work at and we used it to synthesize a radioactive psychedelic that we use for experiments so did you take it um, oh absolutely not no no it's, it's, it's radioactive God, God <laughs> but, uh, that. yeah wow but uh, but um but yeah, it's, you know, drug policy is, is really complicated. And I wish I had a, a simple answer to what people should do. Because, um, because I but I but I think that with liberalization, with increased education, with decriminalization, people will begin to work out how to use these things. And maybe bad things will happen, but that's the price of freedom. And I think that as a culture, we will mature and evolve to navigate that freedom. I mean, there's just a lot of dangerous things that happen all the time. Roads are dangerous. Cars are insanely dangerous. But we have seatbelts and airbags, and we have regulations where uh, you there are legal penalties for driving irresponsibly. And I think that it's not much of a stretch to assume that we could have a similar attitude toward chemicals that are potentially dangerous. Well, I mean, we've seen a big cultural shift with the attitude towards cannabis, right, over the last sort of 30 years or so. Do you think that's a model that we're going to see with other drugs moving forward? It would appear that psilocybin's kind of at the beginning of that threshold, a little bit of legalization, a little bit of therapeutic use. It's starting to get hold of the culture in a way that makes it seem less demonized. Is this just going to continue to expand out and cover the entire mind-altering drug market? I think it will, yeah, because these are good things. These are things that will have a good 
effect on many people's lives and that could really help a lot of people. Like I genuinely believe that some of these things, you know, I, I try to be very balanced and sober in my thinking about the subject and not get into, you know, say cannabis cures all diseases or uh, psilocybin is going to, you know, cure all of society's ills or whatever. But, you know, I think that there are a lot of dark psychological trends in our society. People are spending all of their time in front of computers. People are very, they're not reading, they're detached from certain aspects of reality, they're disconnected from each other. And I think that um, they're disconnected from the drugs that they use, they're disconnected from the food that they eat, they're disconnected from almost every aspect of their lives. And I think that drugs could have like far reaching positive effects. Like I was even thinking like yesterday, like what if there were cannabis community gardens and people could just garden cannabis? Like how much fun that would be for as for a community. And you could go and people would, would just hang out and it would be fun for young people and old people and people could gather and play music or things like that. You know, these things bring people together. We're so used to talking about how drugs tear apart families that we never or tear apart relationships or people's careers or whatever that we forget that they're also extremely social. I mean, that's the main thing that people use them for most of the time is to be with other people, to bond with people, to socialize. And, uh, and I think that, you know, a lot of people would get interested in growing plants and fungi if they were able to do it whatever they wanted, if they had freedom. Um, and I think that like, what are the downstream effects? People become more interested in drugs, then they become more interested in therapy, they become more interested in art, they become more interested in science, they become more interested in helping their community. I think like, I think that the responsibility associated with the liberalization of drug laws will actually help mature the world, like in a, in a good, very beneficial way. Um, because this idea that they're bad and they're dangerous and anyone who uses them deserves what they get. Like the, it's amazing how little empathy people have. Um, and, and I, th these are all just unfortunate vestiges of the war on drugs. Like I've, I've heard people say things like, uh, you know, like pe like junkies should get one shot of Narcan. And then after that, it's up to them. Let them die. You know, things it's like, what are you talking about? Why do you why would you want to regulate how often someone gets a life saving intervention? Why do you hate these people? Where is your like, what did they ever what did someone who's dependent on opioids ever do to you? And why don't you just see it as a medical problem that should be treated with empathy and care and science like anything else? Well, I mean, uh, and meanwhile, that person's having half a bottle of wine per night and a few cans on a weekend. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's our whole our concept of what constitutes addiction is so bizarre and distorted. I I can't tell you how many people I've met who are sober, like pub, like on Instagram, like five months sober. Yeah. Who are more addicted to drugs than like <laughs> than certainly I have ever been. I mean, I, because, but they will say, oh I, yeah, I'm a, a dependent on opioids, but they're prescribed by a physician for pain. So it's not, and it's like, okay, well then you have a very distorted, and nothing against people that do that, but it's, you know, it's like, if you need to do that while simultaneously declaring that you are 
sober and that drug abuse is a problem, then you have a very confused attitude toward your drug use. I think there's there's so much pleasure that we can all take from highlighting hypocrisy. And my other favorite one that's happened over the last couple of years has been um, people adopting the veganism movement, but still sniffing cocaine. I run nightclubs. No. I run a lot of nightclubs. And um, I obviously see quite a lot of party drugs. And people who are outwardly very concerned about the suffering of animals, but not so outwardly concerned about the suffering of people in Medellin or other like humans that have been trafficked or caught or shot or killed or tortured or in any other way mistreated so that they can get a buzz on on a Friday or a Saturday night. Well, that's a complicated one. I, I, I am kind of on the fence about the moral implications of using cocaine because, because I've, I've heard that argument and you know, those, those are not, again, maybe this is my, my like idealistic attitude, not reflecting the, practical aspects of reality but um you know those are not issues with cocaine those are issues with prohibition and so it's like is it unethical to use cocaine uh maybe well, but it's it not the cocaine issue. the cocaine's not the issue it's, it's the externality of the process that we have to go through to get it at the moment right yeah and the fact that it's all that is a product of it being illegal not a product of people using cocaine or cocaine in, as a plant alkaloid. That's exclusively what happens in a black market economy. Um, and so I don't know that I think that using cocaine is unethical uh, as much as I would maybe hope that anyone that really enjoys cocaine also cares about drug policy a little bit. And maybe they are, you know, thinking about what needs to be done to reform drug policy in the regions where coca is grown to, uh, to minimize the negative impact that it can have on those communities, which is, you know, it's not easy. Fair trade cocaine. That's Fair what trade. we need. Well, I, you, I, you're joking, but people actually, I've heard people talk about that of, of like, you know, the, uh, yeah, people do things like that actually. And I've heard people talk about it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, but again, this is, you know, this is like, all this stuff is just a product of the illegality of these substances. It doesn't need to be that way at all. It could be an uplifting plant that it provides a source of income for many people, which it is. I mean, it's, you know, it's also there's a, a huge uh, market for coca that is not illegal. Coca-Cola, of course, still uses coca in its formulation and you have, although it's decoconized, and you have, um, you know, you have an enormous coca tea industry, all sorts of coca candies, coca products that are used in South America. So um, it's, you know, it is, I think, a, a very positive plant. And the only negative aspects of it come from its illegality. Do you ever wish that you could have tried some of the original Coca-Cola? Yeah, I think that would have been, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I actually think like I, I'm not a big, I, I ha, you couldn't pay me to, to sniff the sort of cocaine that, uh, <laughs> that exists seriously. I mean, I, I wouldn't and I don't, uh, and, but I, as a teenager, I used it a, a few times and, um, and I've analyzed a decent bit of, of cocaine and of course it's all horrendously impure. 
and um, and <clears throat> but when it's taken orally in a tea, it's very nice. It's really very very. And that's already like I, I think that's actually the best way to do it. Like this is another kind of aspect of the way black markets shape drug usage trends is you have um, like a risk premium that's paid. So you have to, you know, you're, you're transporting the substance. You have to transport it in the most potent, most concentrated form possible because it's sometimes, you know, coming on drones, in submarines, smuggled in airplanes, smuggled in people's bodies. You know, this is, this is incredibly difficult and dangerous. So you want the absolute most potent form of the substance that you're bringing into the country. Well, that's the best for black market smuggling of an illegal commodity. But is that the best way to use cocaine? Almost certainly not. It's probably the absolute worst way to use cocaine. The best way to use cocaine is coca leaves in a warm tea in the morning. And uh, as you you know read the news or whatever, that's the best way to use cocaine. That is nice. It feels very similar to caffeine. It does not seem to produce any negative physiological effects for users. It does seem to produce positive effects for many people. And that is the way that people use it traditionally in everywhere that there is a tradition where it's not illegal. It's only, it's really like all of these horrible things that we associate with cocaine are really horrible things associated with cocaine's illegality. That's such an interesting point. I had a story to tell you actually. So I have a friend who's a, who's a DJ and he, he travels a lot and he does tours and stuff like that. And he was telling me this story about when he was in South America and obviously, cocaine has quite a luxurious brand attached to it. It's kind of seen as the Lamborghini, so to speak, of like party drugs. You know, it's expensive. It's um, conspicuous consumption, it would be called by the sociologists. And um, he was down in Argentina or Mexico or wherever it was. And uh, he was asking the promoter, it was someone in his entourage asked the promoter if they could get a hold of some cocaine. And the promoter looked at them like they'd asked for, I don't know, like heroin in the UK or something like that. And he's like, really? You want that? And what it turned out was that because it's so cheap to get a hold of cocaine wherever the guys were, that was seen as a really scummy drug. The branding for cocaine down there was awful. Whereas 2CB, which if you were to take that in the UK, would be like, what are you, why are you taking 2CB on a night out? But because 2CB over there is £100 a hit or £50 a hit or something like that, that is the drug which is put on a pedestal. That's the one that's all about status. And because cocaine's so cheap, that's the one that's seen as a, a really sort of scummy, awful drug that people shouldn't take. I thought that was really hilarious to see how cultural interpretations of drugs completely change how they're positioned. That's absolutely true. I actually wanted to dedicate an entire episode to that in the third season, and I was going to do 2CB labs in South America, but I wasn't able to find a chemist who was making it. I really tried. I, we had a, a team scouting, really trying to make If anyone listening to this uh, is associated with the synthesis of 2CB in South America, please do contact me. I'd love to have a conversation about it because I think it's totally fascinating. And I completely agree with what you said that um, a lot of the way we perceive these drugs is uh, a product of the way they're marketed, their cost, their social connotations. Um, there was a drug in the UK called Mephedrone. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, that when MCAT or Meow. Yeah, MCAT. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which had a very, as I understand it, as a American, a very, very bad reputation in the UK. It was well, considered it was, like really disgusting. Of course, because it doesn't smell very nice. It smelled really strong, and it was basically the poor person's version of taking cocaine. But dude, there was a period. I shit you not. There was a period in UK nightlife where people would rack that up on a bar on a bar because it wasn't a controlled substance yet and if the door staff would come over and quite rightly say excuse me what the fuck are you doing they would just be like mate not illegal and obviously they'd get thrown out for being a dick but the police <laughs> could come <laughs> the police could come up and there was nothing there was nothing to be done it didn't last very long there wasn't a big period of time i remember man once i got a broadcast message on whatsapp and it must have been a couple of weeks before this stuff became illegal and someone was trying to sell kilos of it they were like oh we're trying to shift a couple of does anyone want a couple of kilos of mcat before the new legislation comes in I'm like no no who wants that but yeah very much so that was exactly the same like i mean the the effect of it it's very speedy have you ever tried it oh yeah have you, yeah i've tried i think it's one of the greatest drugs ever discovered i am MCAT? a huge fan of it. really yes wow yeah. yes yeah yeah, yeah it's I think, very i think that it's a perfect rushy and i think it's a perfect example of it was considered disgusting garbage it was the grimiest stuff out there and so no one cared they just it was junk no one cared about it no one appreciated it but i guarantee if someone had carefully presented you with mephedrone and said you know there's a brilliant biochemist who spent his entire life studying the serotonin transporter and the dopamine transporter and the balance of dopamine reuptake inhibition to serotonin release is optimized for maximum euphoria with no neurotoxic effect then you would have had a totally different experience and uh and i think that yeah, that it was it was like not appreciated at all as a substance when in fact I think that it was um in terms of like a what people are looking for in a recreational drug, I think that it represented almost like the perfect recreational drug. Um have you and, considered uh, have you considered going into branding? You could rebrand <laughs> you could rebrand some of these drugs and give them a new name, give them a new honestly, I, I genuinely think the price was a big part of it. The fact it was so cheap and price is seen as an indicator of quality. If it had been fifty pounds a gram, as opposed to there was a period where you could get it for between five and ten pounds a gram. You're talking like one twentieth to one tenth of what it should be for cocaine. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um it's really really interesting. And the other thing that you mentioned that I think is also really interesting is that when a drug is made illegal, it causes people to panic by enormous quantities of it so this guy that's selling you a kilo or trying to sell you a kilo that was not uncommon that was happening to people all over the uk and similar things have happened in the united states so the government announces their plan to make kratom illegal what is the first thing i do i don't even like kratom at all <laughs> i never use it and uh and and the first thing i do is buy a kilo of it because i think uh well, you know, maybe maybe they'll just regulate it in like on a state level and it's better to and maybe it'll be hard to get and I might want to use it in scientific research and who knows. And so suddenly I have like a massive quantity of this substance I don't even like or want to use. It's just like gathering dust in my closet. And uh, and 
and that would have never happened if the DEA hadn't announced their intention to prevent people from accessing it. So this panic buying is a reality with psychoactive drugs. I mean, it, it is you could hardly think of a worse way to regulate use of psychoactive drugs in the way that the government currently does it. It is it is it would be funny if it weren't so horrendously tragic. They have the Streisand effect as well with this, right? It's like, d don't bother looking about this. And then everybody wants to know what the hot new shit is. Oh, wow. Oh, God. Like schedule one. Like that, that must be some strong shit. Got to get me, got to get me some of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because of the totally warranted distrust of the media, um, you know, like no journalist, every journalist is writing these sensational stories about illegal drug teen tears their scrotum off from <laughs> meow meow. That's that's a that's I, that's almost. I remember a verbatim, the story, verbatim headline from the Sun, I believe, and uh, and you know, oh, I mean, here's a funny story. the The reporting was so insane at that time that they were just publishing anything, and I started to think, like, what is what are the barriers for entry here like can i just contact one of these journalists and just say some insane thing and it will end up in the sun so i uh like at the beginning of this conversation i was talking about cubane so i was thinking like wouldn't it be hilarious to chemists if i said that like four cubanal methcathinone like this just like absurd molecule that has never been synthesized were like a new mephedrone derivative that was taking the uh the UK by storm. So I wrote a journalist at the sun and said, like, you know, I'm a chemist. I've done a lot of work with substituted cubanes. And, uh, and, you know, you really need to be aware of this for cubanal methcathinone. It's a serious problem. And, and I hope that you care enough about, you know, your readers at the sun to raise awareness. And they immediately contacted me. They got my phone number. They called me on the phone. And then when they were like, doing the interview, I was like, ah, I can't. I can't go through with this. This is too too much is, journalistic integrity, man. You should have just done it. Yeah, I should have done it as a, like as. A, but then I just started started to think like, you know, it's it's really horrifying. We don't live in a mature enough society for for pranks like that because it's like what then then what are they going to make Cubane illegal as a result <laughs> of my stupid joke? Like you know, it's it's something something like that is not out of the question. So, um, so I just started to think, okay, this is, this is too much, but they would write, they would report anything. And so people don't trust anything that they say justifiably. And so the, the like any potential public health interventions that could in an ideal world come through the media are totally meaningless because no one trusts anything that they say. And, and if anything serve as, as you said, like Streisand uh, effect, like, advertisements for these substances that people know whether they're good or bad the media would never uh represent them accurately so you might as well give it a shot are there any drugs that you haven't taken or any substances that you still want to oh i mean you know the chemical space is virtually infinite and so there are uh, a near infinite number of drugs that i have not taken and um and there are specific unusual things that i would hope at some point in my life to evaluate many of them. I'm not in a rush to try because they are um, either potentially dangerous or potentially potentially very disruptive to my functioning for periods of time. So they're they're not uh, high on the list. And um, you know, I've I, I would say that I have experienced many of the 
things that I want to experience in that realm. And my interest now is primarily in synthesis and uh, discovery of new things. That's, you know, I think that there are so many amazing traditions out there and I've had the tremendous privilege of being able to spend time with many different indigenous groups and learn about the way that they use psychoactive plants and fungi. And, uh, and now my hope would be to integrate all the things that I've learned in my travels and, and try to use it to inform the discovery of new compounds and try to think about the best ways that these compounds can be integrated into our culture. The interesting thing that I find about your work is that although you're obviously engaged in the substances that you take and you're very inquisitive about what does this feel like, you're pretty good at de describing the phenomenological experience of it as well. But I've never seen you cross the line into someone who's just kind of recreationally being very blasé around the drugs. It seems like there's quite a lot of respect for them. Obviously, you come at this from the side of a chemist as well. I know that you always talk about knowing dosages correctly, like super, super anal around when it comes to what's the dosage, exactly what am I taking, what's the level of purity and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I think it's, from my perspective, as someone who's been around a lot of drugs for a long time, especially in the party scene, where people are taking they they literally have no idea what it is. Like it could be a caffeine pill, it could be an aspirin, it could be a gram of MDMA. You just don't know. Um, and seeing that, I, I'd just call it respect for drugs, I suppose, um, I think is a really good example to be set. Is that something that you consciously try and do to come across in a overly responsible way? Yeah, it is. Because, I mean, there's a number of reasons for it. But one is that having that respect it's not some abstract thing, you know, this directly impacts the experience and has a very positive effect. So when people will say these things to me, like, what's the craziest thing you've ever done? Aren't you afraid that you're going to go like you're never going to come back? It's like, well, I'm extremely cautious. So I don't know what to tell you. I'm very careful. And so I would be much people like I, yeah, some woman came up to me at Whole Foods and was like, how are you still alive? It's like, how am I still alive? On my walk home from work, I see people dead drunk on the street who are more intoxicated than I've ever been every day. So like, why is it like this is we're so confused by anyone that is like open about their occasional responsible use of substances that we assume that that person must be a maniac. And so even when I'm very cautious, people have that attitude. The other thing is that even at the, the times when I was like the first piece I ever made, I was 21 and was I was that? making it. It was uh, a trip down the Amazon uh, to to find this frog Fila medusa by color that is it the one where you a, got burned yeah so i was yeah seen, i was i have I seen was, that yeah yeah i was 21 i was a college student i was deeply unaware of many things and in particular i was unaware of the way my actions would be perceived by other people because it's not until you make things for public consumption that you start to even think about that because you're you know you're with your friends you're with people that know you people basically get what you're doing and who you are and so you don't have to think too much about the way things will be perceived and one of the things that i did is i took ritalin with ayahuasca 
and I to this day am criticized by people robotically. It's like it, like if people are criticizing me, they'll be like, "That guy? You're talking about the guy who took Ritalin with ayahuasca?" Quite frankly, I wouldn't trust him at all. And they don't understand. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that, for the record, it is not dangerous to combine Ritalin with ayahuasca. I maybe I shouldn't say that publicly, but for the record, it is. You know, Ritalin is metabolized by hepatic hydrolases. So it's it's not metabolized by MAO, the enzyme that uh, is inhibited by the beta carbolines in the ayahuasca vine. So there is no potentiation of Ritalin by monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Okay, that's just the way it is. So you can talk about how it's dangerous all day, but it's simply, I mean, I'm not going to recommend other people do it, but Ritalin is not metabolized by MAO. So and uh, and and so, you know, all these but I have to deal with it. it doesn't matter that what I did wasn't dangerous. What matters is that people say that it's dangerous and then they harass me about it and they write it on forums and then they robotically repeat it uncritically and never actually look, learn about the metabolism of Ritalin. And so like just that is an example. It's like you have to think about what is what is going to be the like decade long fallout of some little action, you know, like and, and there's part of me that thinks like, well, I guess maybe okay good because i showed that i was honest about something but you know there, there's a price for that type of honesty and it's it can be very obnoxious i think that the main problem we're coming up here is a, a singular thread which is through a lot of things not just your work but almost everybody else when you talk about child youtubers or people who've been on twitter for a decade society and civilization just isn't meant to have all of the things that we did or said like encased in stone and able to be reaccessed perfectly for the rest of time like that's just not the way that it's supposed to happen it's supposed to be that a thing happens and then maybe it was right maybe it was wrong but after 10 years or so people can't remember it in any case and half of them have died and that's how our society grew over time but now sadly the things that you did or said when you were 13 or 17 or 21 they're just enshrined for the rest of your days and that's going to be you know potentially that could be the thing like that's oh you're the you're the ritlin and ayahuasca guy and you know you've got to spend the rest of your life trying to constantly wipe this slime off you right and and for and it's especially annoying because there is nothing wrong with it it's like you're also battling against people's bizarre misinterpretations of things that's the really the biggest issue is not actual problems it's things that people have decided are problems and their critical thinking skills aren't good enough to recognize that whatever it is that they're angry about isn't actually an issue um yeah there's that and then there's another problem that i think about a lot which is I think people have become so disconnected from the act of creation, many people, that they confuse consumption with creation. And they think that the order that they view things is the order that those things exist in reality. So like some, you know, some like, some cultural critic was writing a, a snotty review of my show recently and he was talking about how you know he he had a lot of hope for me because he read this great harper's article that i wrote but then he saw this horrible video that i made later about crystal coal and again this is another misconception that people robotically repeat because they're not capable of critically thinking about things but anyway but what was really annoying to me is he's talking about uh he's talking about a like he he's confusing the chronology of my work because that, that's the order that he looked at things. That's not the order that they happened. And I see that all the time where people are like so 
disconnected that they don't even care about when things are created or where they're created or the context. I mean, a lot of websites now have to put a notice on articles that say this article is five years old because people won't even look at the date that things are made because they don't seem to even care. And and it's not those people's fault entirely. Like we are being disconnected from the act of creation, like in all sorts of different ways, like on st most streaming uh, web services, they cut out the credits entirely now. Why would you want to look at the credits? That's just names of people that made it. That's not important. It's like, that is who made it. That is the information. That is extremely important. You should, maybe you don't recognize the names, but if you care about it, you should look at them. And maybe you can learn more about if that episode is particularly beautiful. Maybe you should look into who photographed it. Who is the director of photography in that episode? What else have they done? Maybe that explains it. Maybe it wasn't the like overarching media corporation that distributed it. Maybe it was a human being who should be appreciated or whatever. So like, I don't know, that, that's like a complicated, like overarching issue I have with contemporary media literacy. But uh, it's it's a rough time. And I agree, we did not evolve to have like these uh, these lasting records and we have not culturally evolved to maturely recognize that fact like all of this uh, you know offense archaeology all of this stuff where people spend enormous amounts of time trying to um, dig up evidence that somebody said something that was bad 15 years ago it's it's that is not integrating this understanding that you just described that like people change that we didn't evolve to be to have this timeless record of every single thing that we had said and uh and i don't know i don't know like what the solution to this is other than you know uh like improved cultural literacy and or improved media literacy culturally and uh and kind of like empathy for that fact and empathy for people in general i don't know i don't know what the solution is either man like Nick Bostrom has this idea about pulling different types of technology out of an urn, and he says that every, you, there is a temptation to pull out a black ball, and the black ball is an existential risk. But I am really, really concerned that social media and ubiquitous communication that stores everything that everyone's ever said or done forever is a slowly transforming black ball. It might only be grey at the moment, but it's getting darker grey and darker grey and darker grey all the time. And the reason for that is that it causes us to increasingly look at what other people are doing as opposed to trying to create something ourselves. Perfect example of this is, are you familiar with Lindy? Do you know what Lindy is? The gas company? <laughs> no, um, it's a particular heuristic. It's a model for how long something has been around. If something has been around for a while, the classics have been around for a long time. So you read 1984, which has been around for 50 years. It's probably going to be around for another 50 years. It basically is a heuristic that says the most recent stuff isn't necessarily the best. Read the classics for a reason. But yeah. if you think about what most people have spent today consuming, almost all of the content that everyone listening to this show has consumed today will have been created within the last 24 hours. And that should fucking terrify almost everybody. Do you think that's the opposite of Lindy? That isn't the classics. That isn't stuff that stood stood the test of time. That is just someone's so, someone's meandering thoughts whilst they're wiping dog poo off their shoe, like this morning on an Instagram story, or like someone's annoyed tweet when they couldn't sleep at two a.m. That is what we're feeding ourselves. I think it's that's definitely leading us towards more of a black a black ball. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, 
it's really it's very tricky it's very troubling um and i just hope that people can be as kind to each other as possible because it's there is definitely a a culture of meanness that i see on the internet that is slightly disturbing to me and it's not even that people are mean because everyone is mean i mean we're all, i'm not trying to pretend that i'm like a, a very good person who's never thinks mean thoughts about people i think mean thoughts all the time but the difference is that i don't feel comfortable being publicly mean even just that little rant that i just gave about the guy writing the the uh a uh, story where he confused the chronology of my work and used it to criticize me immediately afterwards. I was like, Oh, that's not a good thing to talk about publicly. That's weird. Like, because you know, you, if, if you are publicly mean, it just like poisons you a little bit. And it, it has this, uh, I, I, and I've experienced this, I've made little tiny mean remarks and I've seen how it comes back to get you. And then I look at these people who are so insanely mean, like as their whole identity on the internet. And I think like, what is that doing to that person's consciousness? They've just created an ecosystem of meanness that is going to make them so miserable. And, and they're not interested in appreciating anything. They're not interested in like, everything is hating people for who they're not instead of loving them for who they are. And, uh, and it's like, it's just not going to make people happy. Like I, I'm not even talking about the effect on uh, of the target of their meanness. I'm talking about the effect on the person who is being mean. Like they are not going to be happy if they are that way. So I don't know. I, I just hope that. And uh, yeah, I think like Facebook and all these social media companies had an, an interesting idea that if people's faces were attached to things and their real names were attached to things, maybe they would be at the very least embarrassed to be publicly cruel, but that doesn't seem to have worked. So I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution is other than, I don't know. Huge dose of psychedelics. Maybe, globally. maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I think it could help. I, you know, well, I guess we'll see. If it doesn't help, it was definitely worth trying. Yeah, and everyone, we, had, yeah. and everyone had a great time. What should we expect <laughs> from the next decade of psychedelics? I think it's going to be a really interesting decade. I'm very excited. I'm so excited that I'm, you know, probably leaving most of the work that I've done for the last decade to dedicate myself entirely to psychedelic research, um, like, at, you know, scientific research. That's my plan right now. You're so, um, so well positioned, man. When you think about the background that you've got yourself to, the platform you have, the audience you have, the ability to be like the the Brian Cox of psychedelics. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's surreal having all these companies contact me asking me to be on their, you know, advisory board or to do this or that type of research. And it's really a dream come true because for the last years I have self funded the research or there's been small amounts of money that come from the university that I work at and, uh, or did this research at. And it's, uh, and it was, you know, it was, there wasn't, there were no resources and now there are tremendous resources. So it's, that's so exciting because you think about the history of, of psychedelic research post sixties when there was no funding, like as, as much as the politics of the war on drugs interfered with psychedelic research, another big factor that isn't talked about as much is lack of funding. You know, there were, there were, uh, there were people doing psychedelic research, I think up until the, until the, at the very least late seventies and, uh, and they just 
didn't have money. They weren't shut down by the government. They didn't have money to do it. So now that all these resources are available, I think that some really, really interesting things might come out of the sphere that could really help people. And that's that's very exciting. And 10 years from now, yeah, I mean, I hope that there is growth in every direction. I hope that there is growth in the basic scientific understanding of the pharmacological mechanism of psychedelics. I hope there's growth in the pharmaceutical implementation of psychedelic medicines that are made available to people that don't want to buy them via an unregulated black or gray market. And I also hope that there is a decriminalization that allows people to cultivate psychoactive plants and fungi on their own, create their own rituals, their own communities to do it in the way that best suits them. Like, I hope that there's just an expansion of knowledge and freedom. And I think that, yeah, I think it could be great. I hope I'm, I am, I'm not a usually very optimistic person, but it does force me to feel a tiny bit optimistic. That's good enough for me, man. <laughs> yes. Honestly, that's good enough for me. Look, Hamilton, it's been awesome today. If people want to watch the show uh, in the UK or in the US, where should they go? It's a hard show to watch. You can uh, in the UK, you might be able to get it on Amazon, iTunes. Um, you can watch it Hulu live. You can watch it on Hulu at some point, although I don't know when people have been ripping it and putting it on YouTube, which I'm actually really happy about, except for they seem to cut off the end of episodes. Which I'm Has it got like Spanish, about. Spanish overdubbed music? Has it got like <laughs> S- Spanish Hamilton or something on it? They, they put in uh, actually like soccer games into it. So that kind of stuff I don't really like very much. But but it's, you know, I search for it. You'll find it. It's out there. It's not that easy to find, but it's available. I watch it on or would watch it on uh, Amazon. And then I also have a, uh, a podcast, which you can check out at patreon.com slash Hamilton Morris. It's largely chemistry oriented, but it has uh, some other stuff that people might find interesting. Uh, and it's very psychoactive drug oriented, as you might imagine. Um, and uh, and then this pamphlet, if anyone wants to buy this this book, which has a, a you know, it's a great historical document about Bufo Alvarius. It also contains a new uh, forward and synthesis section that is really you know useful for anyone that's interested in the chemistry of 5-MeO-DMT. Uh, you can get that at www.psychedelictoadofthesonorandesert.com. So. Are there any of those left? I know you had to do a bunch of different runs, right? Yeah, the first one sold out in an hour. That was pretty wild. Then the second one sold out in a day and then there's a third very a larger final printing that has not sold out so if anyone wants to pre-order it as of this discussion um it's there's still a good number of them left and 100 percent of the profit goes to the michael j fox foundation for parkinson's research so amazing i'll link that in the show notes below if anyone wants to pick one up along with wherever i can find hamilton's pharmacopoeia dude I'm, i'm really excited to see what your work has in store for you i know it's the final season of your show and you're now dedicating yourself fully to the the chemistry so it's like white lab coat as opposed to like sun hat and like white shirt and jeans for the for the next few years but it's gonna yeah. be it's gonna be exciting to watch yeah yeah thank you i enjoyed the conversation and uh i'll talk to you later <laughs> <laughs>